From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Wells Fargo's customers turfed out of their homes due to a coding error, Facebook wants to share data with banks, and Wonga's £10 million lifeline. But can it save them? All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in a rather wet London town. My name is Ross Gallagher, Principal Consultant at 11FS, and I'm joined by my colleagues and co-host Sarah Kachansky and 11FS's own jobs-to-be-done guru, Ryan Garner. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm good, but why does my job title get to go in there? And why am I titleless? Um, I, do you know what? So anyone who's just stopped listening to any of our other podcasts, so InsureTech Insider, Blockchain Insider, I'd probably just describe you as the omnipresent Sarah Kachansky. <laughs> I'm that? always here. That's fair. I've, Ryan, only do, I've, only done, I've only done two this week, so. That's not enough. Sorry. Carry on. Ryan, how many podcasts have you done this week? Zero. Zero. Uh, but I've just been given a rum and coke. And I've been called a guru, so I'm very good, thank you. <laughs> it's not a bad place to start, is it? Um, and as ever, we are not alone, and we are joined in the room, as usual, by some fantastic guests. So we have Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Communications at Acorn Oak North, and Sharon O'Day, Digital Comms Expert. Sharon, that's a great title. Sarah had to say I had to come up with something. I Probably love being it. freelance is uh, you don't really have a job title. Well, I'd, I'd take Digital Comms Expert. Val, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Um, it's nice. It's not too hot in London anymore. We finally had the first bit of rain I think we've seen in a few weeks. So it's been really exciting. Yeah, from the intro, we've gone from a very sunny London town last week to a rather wet London town yeah. this week. But that's For um, London, we know and love. That's absolutely fine. Okay, I'm really looking forward to this show. This is probably one of my favorite uh, new show lineups we've had. So let's crack on. Our first story today comes from City AM, and it's about Barclays taking a significant minority stake in London fintech market invoice. So Barclays has acquired a significant minority stake in market invoice and in a deal that will also see them lead market invoices upcoming Series B fundraising as Europe's largest online invoice financing platform market invoice has received over 18 million pounds in publicly disclosed funding to date and also backed by early Spotify invest in North Zone and private equity group MCI Capital. So by investing Barclays will deploy market invoice technology to provide 1 billion in capital for the UK small businesses and the proposition will be introduced to Barclays clients over the coming months in areas across the UK with a full rollout set to commence nationwide in 2019. So Barclays also plans to fund invoices via the platform in the future. So what do we think about this one? I'm going to get in there with my SMB hat on because I've been writing about SMB financing forever, it seems. My report's coming out next week. Finally, I've been talking about it for weeks. This is really interesting on several levels. For me, the fact that Market Invoice has allowed this to happen, to, to I mean, obviously they had to agree that Barclays would take this minority stake. They say it's a minority stake, which I think means it's less than 29% because basically Barclays aren't a controlling stake. It suggests to me, okay, so why did they decide that they needed that? Why couldn't they go it alone? Because Market Invoice had done very, very well, you know, off their own back. The other thing is, you know, that question like, well, if we're seeing that happen, what what is the future for this sort of marketplace model? The other thing is that uh, Market Invoice has partnerships with people like Investec. So it has partnerships with some 
other financial services institutions which for whom it does the same thing it provides their technology and then they either fund or you know they offer it to their clients etc cetera, etc cetera. so from an smb perspective great the more people offering smbs access to credit the better from a model perspective which is actually my main point of interest on this like hmm is where i'm going with this i want to know more about this i want to know why they've you know allowed that to happen why they've they've taken that uh, relinquished that control yeah it remains to be seen i think val definitely pulling out on sarah's point about the more people providing smb lending the better i guess you'd agree with that right yeah for sure and i think you know obviously um you know but i think it's it's that you're seeing sort of where historically there might have been sort of this you know build it in house as you say or buy, acquire or buy um, another provider you're seeing more of the the partnerships you know you've seen it with santander and cabbage you've seen it with jp morgan and on deck capital obviously we're doing a sort of similar thing at sort of slightly higher la- stage, um, slightly higher ticket size. And I think it's because, you know, you look at some of the, the acquisitions that have happened in the past, BBVA and Simple, and, you know, they've actually turned out to not be very um, effective. So they're seeing that partnership might be a slightly less risky way to do it. Um, you know, you're seeing with BBVA as well, taking, you know, very significant stake in um, Atom Bank, for example. And there were lots of questions around whether they were going to then um, acquire Atom. And so that might be sort of a first stage. You partner with them, see what it's like, and then go from there. It's, it's almost actually a supplier relationship at this point, right? Mm-hmm. They're, a, I mean, a little bit as Oak North yep. does, you're actually a te- they're actually a technology vendor, which Barclays is paying to provide its you know, provide uh, invoice factoring to its small businesses, which, as you know, Val suggests, suggests they can't do it their own, <laughs> which Bar- from Barclays is quite an admission. Yeah, and I think so. This partnership is part of Barclays' plans to invest in in new business models for growth anyway. So there, there, there's a bigger picture, right? This is probably, I think, the first in a, a series of banking deals to come in that space. And also, I'd say market invoice. I mean, so they launched in 2011, and the max that they, the max ticket signs that they offer is about 100k, and they've lent about 2.7 billion. So not an insignificant sum when you think. I mean, how many transactions that need to be, especially because that's the max they do. Probably, I mean, the average is quite a bit less than that. So, um, you know, they've had a very clear impact on the the SME lending space, and they've carved themselves, you know, a really a really good niche. I think what's also key to me is it's not necessarily straight lending; it's the invoice factoring thing, which you know, banks have offered businesses for for. Years and years, I won't say hundreds of years, I've no idea if that's true, but they have offered it to them for a very long time. But invoice factoring is even more complex than a straight loan because you have to know who's going to fulfill the invoice at the end of the day. You have to know whether they're, you know, a big client, a small client, you have to know what their history is. You know, this has been one area where banks have just not even looked at for small businesses. Some of them have dipped their toe in the small business straight lending pool, but actually, in terms of invoice factoring, they've gone, nah, way too complicated for us. Um, and, and not worth the effort because, as Val says, if you're only going to lend 100K, then what's the point of going through six? weeks of checking the you know the payees and the the purchases and the suppliers and checking that whole supply chain thing when actually it's not worth it yeah actually it sort of ties into a piece of research that i did when i was at ukti a few years ago about uh, small business expansion and why and how people might invest for growth particularly international um international expansion and export and actually what they found when we, we were working with them was around uh, the the thing that stopped people being able to to um, expand and export was actually the complexity, the the amount of work involved in not just looking for for uh, access to finance, but actually managing that process. It meant that actually people stopped before they started. So the more options that are available to the SMB market, it has a huge potential impact on on the economy as a whole. When you consider what is it, ninety nine percent of businesses are, are SMB. Very much agreed, and a sector that's traditionally been dramatically underserved. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, we spoke to Anil Stocker, CEO of Market invoice to find out more. Okay, my name is Anil Stocker and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Market Invoice. So here at Market Invoice, we're super excited to be working with Barclays. This is the first time ever a UK high street bank has worked 
and partnered with a fintech to help uh, their SME customers. Barclays banks about 1 million businesses in the UK. They have about 25% of the market. They want to introduce new products to their customer base. We got talking. They loved our invoice finance solutions. And we felt together that we had the right DNA and, uh, and we wanted to collaborate to really bring more products such as ours to their, to their customers. And what's even more exciting, I guess, is Barclays investing in to market invoice. They're a minority shareholder now. So we're aligned in uh, working and growing this partnership over time. Uh, how is it going to work, this partnership? So Barclays has thousands of relationship managers across the country who handle relationships with businesses. They also have call centers. They have growth experts. And what's going to happen is our, our product is going to be embedded into their core offering uh, so that these relationship managers can tell customers that if they need invoice finance or working capital to help them grow, they can use market invoice. They will then come onto our platform. They'll go through our website, onto our platform. Uh, we will assess everything, get them set up, and, and then eventually Barclays will also fund onto the platform. So the idea is that Barclays will refer customers and also fund. Of course, this will happen over a period of time. We'll start with a pilot program in certain regions, uh, which will be referral only. And then next year, they will start to deploy funding and will roll out nationally. Uh, so uh, there's going to be lots of, lots of great work. Uh, and hopefully, we're going to be helping lots and lots of businesses across the country with their growth plans uh, and how they can scale their operations. You know, as a business, we're kind of growing fast. We're looking at various different things. We were going to do a funding round this year, and we started talking to Barclays. And so we really were focused on getting that partnership and their investment sorted first, uh, which is what we've done. Uh, we will continue to we will continue to do a little bit of fundraising and then make a bigger announcement in a couple of months. Uh, but the real focus was to to close Barclays partnership, given it's such an important one. And really a first for here in the UK uh, and a great example of fintech bank collaboration. So to find out more, you can come to our website. That's www.marketinvoice.com. Uh, you can go to our blog page where you can read about the partnership, the announcement. Uh, Barclays also has a page up on their website that talks about the announcement. Uh, and we'll be putting up you know, some more blogs about this in the coming weeks and a dedicated landing page. So... I, I mean, I also have a blog, analstalker.com, where uh, you can kind of find stuff that I've been doing and also more of my insights on this function. Our next story today comes from Finextra and is to do with Wells Fargo customers being turfed out of their homes. So this story is, by all accounts, absolutely horrific. So the bank revealed that a coding error hit struggling customers over a five-year period between April 13, 2010 and October 20, 2015. Um, and Wells Fargo incorrectly denied them mortgage modifications that effectively would have saved their homes, essentially. So 400 customers subsequently lost their homes as the bank foreclosed on the loans. Uh, so the bank has now said that it has set aside $8 million to compensate customers forced out of their homes. But the reality is that um, the damage has been done here, right? This whole story is, is such a omni-shambles. I was going to go with the other word, but let's go with omni-shambles. So, okay, it was, it was a few years ago now. Firstly, what happened was that there was an error. It's the person writing the algorithm basically wrongly factored in the that lawyers' fees were included or something as simple, not as simple as that, but basically the person writing the al algorithm made a mistake and that went into the formula, 
which decided whether these people were allowed. Um, basically, uh, the government in the US sets a formula by which if you are qualified, then you get a government aided mortgage um, extension, basically on your home, if, if you fall into that group. Um, the, the algorithm basically was a mess. It didn't ca- uh, calculate it properly. You know, there's, there's the whole conversation about humans programming algorithms and then trusting algorithms and that, you know, onwards. But for me, $8 million divided by 400 works out at $20,000 a person. These people lost their homes. Three years ago. I don't like how they've they've talked about this. A coding error. This is a human error. Hmm. Let's get this straight. This is not a... With a human error. Yeah, no, the, the human error. did the coding, yes, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a coding error and it, it's, it's a human error and it's a, it's a process error. Um, and it just shows that something is going terribly wrong there in, in, in how they operate as a business. The other thing I really don't like about this story is that it happened between 2010 and 2015. Why did it last for such a long time? That's five years. And why have we only just found out about it? It's now three years ago since this happened. Absolutely. I think earlier this week, the Justice Department announced Wells Fargo agreed to pay a $2.1 billion fine for issuing mortgage loans that it knew contained incorrect income information. So there's a bigger picture. And of course, this is really just more bad PR for Wells Fargo off the back of what we saw with the ghost accounts that um, account managers set up. So this it's painting a pretty ugly picture, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, it's just, as you say, it's just another sort of bad Wells Fargo story, one after the other. I mean, I actually read an article that said every Wells Fargo consumer scandal since 2015, a timeline, and then it (laughs) went through. And I mean, you know, it is, it's just sort of, you know, whether it's they're being sued for overcharging small businesses, whether it's, you know, an investigation into their wealth management business, um, you know, the settlement that they did um, with the OCC earlier this year when they admitted that they'd charge people, you know, with car loans for insurance, even though they knew that they already had car insurance. I mean, you know, and they, they were one of the sort of the few banks that came out of the financial crisis looking okay. And I think it's just sort of like they've done a race to the bottom over the last the last decade. I think it sort of highlights some of the, the challenges of the computer says no kind of culture. So, you know, there's that, that phrase that all algorithms have parents. But when there is any sort of error in there, that compounds, particularly if you're thinking about fintech, where the whole proposition is about providing services at scale at minimal cost. So I remember reading, what was it, a couple of months ago, there was a blog post from, uh, from Revolut about how... How they, they're not relying on, on scaling the number of people they have in, in the company for things like compliance, but actually building that out as systems. If there's any sort of error in there, that compounds the, the, um, the more people that you're providing it with. Uh, so there is a need to ensure that there's some sort of audits, a sort of systematic check on, on all of that to ensure that you're not building in uh, those sort of errors, particularly when it's got real human consequences for people. Yeah, it underlines Sarah's point, doesn't it, about you don't just write the algorithms and then just let the algorithms take over. There has to be some sort of auditing there and making sure that, like you said, you don't have this fallout on the human side, which is... Yeah, I mean, t- to me, the, the reason this is so catastrophic is it's not, you know, you give somebody compensation when their flight is delayed. You don't give somebody $20,000 compensation when they've lost their house. And and the impact that that would also have on their credit rating and their ability to go yeah. back and get another house and all that kind of stuff. And the impact this is going to have on Wells Fargo's brand as well, even though it might be damaged at the minute, is this is really, really hitting people at that kind of basic human need of security. Yeah. And if they can't deliver on enabling people to have that security, then it's going to massively hit their their, their kind of general brand equity in the market um, and their trust levels and there's there's a certain amount that customers can take until actually they go nah this enough is enough we're going to move on 
And on that as well, I mean, so they've said eight million has been set aside. Like, when are these customers going to be compensated? This ran from twenty ten to twenty fifteen. With their with their very you know pitiful twenty thousand dollars for being <laughs> kicked out of their home for the last five years, I'm sure that they're they're probably thinking that's a bit of pill to swallow. Uh, it kind of reminds me of I was listening to last week's podcast when Sean was talking about you know we talk about regulation and compliance as a, a slight irritant that we have to work around, but the reality is the reason all of those rules exist is because there's often quite significant human consequences to to non-compliance and to any kind of failure in the system yeah agreed and actually it's it's a pretty bleak picture i think in markets outside of the u.s as well so um i'm going to throw this this story to sarah pretty quickly because as any of our regular listeners will know she likes to stay well up to date on what's happening in the australian market but just to cap it a little bit so damning report has found that the banking industry in australia is basically an oligopoly that exploits its customers so that's some pretty strong language but what it's referring to is australia's banking system basically has become so concentrated that its major banks can now pass on costs and set prices to boost profits without fear of losing market share through every stage of the economic cycle so that's from the productivity commission sarah i'm gonna i'm gonna hand it over and let you uh tear this one to pieces i mean the thing that actually makes me quite sad about this is that this is we know we know this. Like I lived in Australia. The reason that I'm so interested in the Australian market is that I lived there for quite a while and everybody knows that there are only four banks in Australia. And as you know, Ross highlighted earlier and we've talked about before, that was deliberate. They deliberately wanted only four banks that they couldn't merge or acquire each other because it was good for competition. But I don't know who in their right mind thought, well, four's enough. Four banks is fine. We just need four. We've got a population of, you know, nearly 30 million, but we just need the four banks. You know, this commission has been so long in coming and its findings are a surprise to absolutely no one. I mean, the findings from this commission have been absolutely spectacular. And I know we're going to go into that um, a little bit further in the next story. But for me, I'm just like oh come on like it's not it's not news anybody who lives in australia knows this i mean we have you know five well we probably have nine major banks in the uk and we have a lack of competition so if you've only got four what what the hell did you think was gonna happen of course they're colluding and also do not forget that the australian banking lobby as is as powerful if not more powerful than the american banking lobby like they have people in parliament and the basically what happened was the australian political situation got so precarious that the opposition actually had the strength to force this through because they thought it would make the well with some hedging but basically what happened was that the the australian politic political situation allowed this to happen and it was forced through something that should have happened 20 years ago um it finally finally got pushed through to have this productivity commission and the findings are what everyone already knows yeah i mean i think exactly on that and i have a a fun fact you know to to demonstrate just how much (laughs) This isn't news. So uh, I did some research looking at actually how many major scandals that have come across the big four banks in Australia since 2009. Anyone want to hazard a guess? I would say hundreds. Okay, well, there's actually been 68, but still. <laughs> Those are the ones you know about. Wait till we get to the next story. Yeah, I mean, there's some this major week. Scandal. I mean, there's still 17 per, per bank. I mean, it, mm. that's that's an, uh, that's two per year. That's for major scandals. Um, and, and they're fantastic yeah. as well. The one We had the one on about the, like losing the, the data. Yeah. Oh, the one about yeah. charging the, dead customers. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, the USB stick that may or may not fall off the back of a truck. Literally. But I, yeah. but, I, but I think that's the point on the inertia because, you know, 
Australia didn't go through a recession like the rest of the world. You know, their last recession was in 1991. And if you look, obviously, the recession was a, was a really difficult time for, for millions of people. But what it actually saw was the birth of new industries like crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending, the, obviously, the, the lowering of the capital requirements to create challenger banks. So then you've seen a little bit more competition, a little bit more innovation in the sector. You haven't, And then that push, that's, you know, I wouldn't say people have overcome their inertia in the UK because we still see switching figures are very low. But obviously, it's got people thinking about different providers. And you have haven't had that in Australia. So despite all these scandals, and despite these sort of constant headlines around their bad behaviour, you just don't have that that uh, that switch. Uh, when I was reading up on this on this story just before we came on the show, uh, it did say there was a, a quote from the uh, the Commission's treasurer who said, "Open banking will be a game changer for Aussie banks and will make it hugely easier for everyone to switch." So if we look at the UK example, I'm going to say good luck with that. And also switch between what from exactly one bad to bank where to another bad bank. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I thought Russell was going to be there, but we have well, there are some challenger banks in Australia. I ING is one of the ING Australia is one of the most popular banks out there because they are I mean ING are nothing if not inventive and they went out there and went hole in the market went straight in and on all of my friends who are I'm not going to use the word millennial because I don't like it and I'm not even sure I am anymore. But um, younger professionals have switched over to ING because it was the only competition. So there is, there are people are spotting holes in the market. Yeah. And I, I mean, so I spoke with Anthony Thompson last week, um, of course, from Metro Bank, Atom Bank fame. Um, and he is heading up the launch of this new fintech out in Australia based in Sydney called 86400. And he spoke about a really thriving um, fintech scene in Sydney in particular. They're looking at launch um, early 2019, but you've got other brands like Ginger, they're raising money. And, you know, actually uh, is, I mean, you know, what we're talking about, the environment here, it must be ripe for disruption, right? Yeah. And I think also because of the, the, the sort of scandals that the big four banks have faced, they're sort of going to be more likely to cooperate with fintechs uh, and show the regu- and demonstrate to the regulators you know that they're willing to play ball and make some some quite proactive change because uh, they're, they're conscious that it can't really continue in the same vein that it has and yeah. the regulators play such a huge role in stimulating that innovation we've seen that in the uk we talked about that about four to six weeks ago about the regulators in hong kong introducing virtual banking licenses you know they are a big, big factor in what happens in these markets in terms of new propositions, new businesses coming to market. Agreed. And actually, that point um, throws us quite nicely into our next story, which comes from the FT and is about the Australian regulator embedding supervisors within these um, these big banks. So there's obviously some level of concern at the regulator level. So Australia's corporate regulator has been given power to embed supervised officers within the country's biggest banks in an attempt to improve corporate behavior following a series of scandals, which we've obviously discussed. So I guess the concerns are around the fact that this might not work. Um, and actually that it might go one step further and create a bit of an us versus them rather than a sort of collaborative um, approach to kind of Ryan, to your point, I guess. The news is bleak this week, isn't it? <laughs> but, <I'm> also, <laughs> but, but just on this one, it is, it is a bit bleak, but also everybody else already does this. This is just Australia being backwards. Like the UK, the US, even the other Australian regulators do this, like put put people inside. Like this is not new. It's them catching up. I mean, I love Australia and I love my Australian friends, but they are quite backwards in many ways. And financial, the ASIC regulator is one of them. In fact, the ASIC regulator, which is the one that's doing this, um, actually had a load of its funding taken away because it wasn't performing properly. And then... This then the government has a kind of okay. Well, we'll give you some more money back, and part of what the agreement is to have the money is to increase supervision. Because basically, the the accusation was, and I don't know whether this is true or not, that they weren't actually doing their job properly. They weren't actually supervising people, so they weren't actually spotting things. 
which is why 110 instances of where National Australian Bank allegedly failed to notify the regulator of significant breaches in financial services license. So 110 times one of the biggest banks in Australia just didn't bother notifying the regulator it had a breach. Yeah, like, but so doesn't the regulator have to accept in that instance some level of responsibility which as well? Is, well, yeah, it, it does, which is why this. I think this is what's pushed this is um, and putting the supervisors into the banks is one of several steps they've done to kind of prove that they are actually stepping up their game and 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 supervising as they are supposed to do. And I think that's the sort of the benefits sort of that they can look at post crisis and see what some of the other regulators did. Um, you know, obviously. Um, the FCA was sort of born out of the, the financial crisis before it was the FSA. Um, so even even things like that, you know, perhaps a sort of rebrand to show um, and, and to reassure the public that actually they're doing their job and they're taking it, um, you know, just as seriously as the public would want them to. And uh, yeah, and in the FCA's case, I think actually being quite proactive in working yeah, with fintechs, definitely. And, I guess, setting that regulatory landscape to your point, Ryan. Yeah. And again, it highlights the opportunity for, for new services because, you know, if the big banks are struggling with the regulators and comp- and compliance and they're actually focused on just getting things right rather than making things better and doing better things, then new brands, new businesses can come in here and, and really have a go. Agreed. And on our next story, so we're not moving away from regulation. Anyone that thought this wasn't going to be like a regulatory <laughs> special. So um, our next story comes from um, Finextra and actually is to do with Arizona opening up the first fintech sandbox in the US, which sounds quite encouraging. But the issue is that uh, not everyone is on board. So Maria Velo, the superintendent of the New York Department of Financial Services, this is just one of the most spectacular quotes I've ever heard. And it's spectacular in how amazingly it manages to miss the complete point. Toddlers play in sandboxes, adults play by the rules. I mean, who wants to come in on that one? At the risk of annoying our American listeners, I know we annoyed some American listeners by talking about American regulation last week. Um, Maria Volo really, really hates the idea that anybody might step on her toes. So she um, believes that she has the authority to regulate finance within the state of New York. And she doesn't like the idea that the federal regulators may come in and be like, actually, we're going to tell you what to do. And she is very, very vocal against the the OCC's fintech charter as well. Also the sandboxes piece. In fact, the state of New York is suing the OCC, I believe, or was suing and had put it on pause, may now sue them again due to recent events uh, for, for, for trying to push through this fintech charter. So she is absolutely adamant that uh, regulations stay in her control. But for me, it just highlights that fragmented nature of the states. Like one going, yeah, this is brilliant. And one going, no, we don't do that. So you think this comment is more of a defensive comment rather than an ignorant one? Because it comes across very ignorant when you first read it. I think it's possibly both. Um, my understanding of Maria Volo is that that's her, her motivation is that she believes she has the, she, she I think she genuinely believes, you know, I'm sure American listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, she genuinely believes that it is much better for the states to be able, in each individual state to be able to control or rather license and supervise um, the financial services players in that state for reasons that I don't fully understand. But I think she genuinely believes that. Um, as to ignorance, I, I, I won't comment and couldn't comment. I don't, I don't know. It sounds ignorant to me. I'm going to comment. Yeah, well, it is, it is interesting. Um, um, insofar as it picks up Sarah on the the sort of consumer point that we picked up on on the show last week as well. So what she said is the idea that innovation will flourish only by allowing companies to evade laws that protect consumers and which also safeguard markets and mitigate risk for the financial services industry is preposterous. But that's not the experience that we've had in the UK. No, right? no I mean, and also the fact is that, it, which is it's a slightly arrogant view that just that as a regulator of one state in one country, 
that you know that that's the the only way to go about things it's like well actually why would a regulator in one of the most complex financial markets in the world uh, be you know what on the fifth uh, sandbox that we've done now here yep. in the UK be working with other regulators around the world to launch a global sandbox i mean it's just sort of it's to say you know that's that's for toddlers to play in sandboxes and not even actually say well you know we've spoken to a few different regulators in our view we haven't seen any tangible um, outcomes from it so we don't think it's you know a great use of our time then at least i'd be like okay it's a slightly more informed view and if that's their opinion that's their opinion but it just sounds like they haven't even done their research into the, you know, speaking to some of the fintechs have gone through the sandboxes, speaking to them about the outcomes. You know, I mean, ours wasn't a, a sandbox, but for example, with Oak North becoming the first UK bank to be fully cloud hosted and working very closely with the regulator on that. And they were hugely supportive and that helped to sort of um, shape the regulation that's now allowed other banks to do it. I mean, I, I do wonder um, if this is in fact a pushback against the Trump administration's decision or a statement that it wants to roll back as much financial regulation as possible. I don't know that, but it occurs to me that since the Trump administration said we want to get rid of as much financial regulation as we possibly can to allow things to flourish, I don't know um, Maria Volo's politics, but it feels like that may be another motivation for her being like, no, we need rules. We have to have rules. And this is, you know, I'm just going to stand my ground on this. Yeah. And more worryingly, she has also highlighted that a, and this sounds ominous, strong state regulatory framework is to follow for fintechs and that should help to protect consumers. Why is that worrying to have a strong state? state regulatory framework for fintech it just sounds rigid and not well i guess the... a, a state as in if you're going to have one for every state that would be going against the whole point that we're trying to do fintechs are trying mm. to come to market and be something that's sort of on a national level versus a state level it, it would be except that i think one of the things that the fintechs in the u.s really really struggle with is a lack of clarity so they don't mm. know what they're doing so if they did have a particular set of rules to play by maybe they'd find it easier i don't know i'm just yeah. putting another another position out there rules are really important regulation is really important it protects customers it protects it helps businesses kind of get their shopping order and make sure they're operating in the right way but the thing about stimulating and innovation is allowing that creativity in the early stages of designing a new proposition. And these sandboxes are really, really great at allowing people to go and think, I hate the word, but outside the box and go and think about those end-to-end journeys that they can nail for uh, customers that are completely underserved in the market right now. But Ryan, you're right. It's, and it's, but it's having the safe space to do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And without that safe space, people aren't going to experiment and people aren't going to be creative and you're going to get the same old propositions um, that, we've, that we've had and that actually failing you know we've seen look at the news stories t- t- today you know we've talked about they're, they're not working but also it's just it's just a bad analogy because you, no one puts a toddler in a sandbox and then leaves them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're being watched by their parents i mean that's the whole point i mean yeah. the, you p- can put them in a sandbox and the regulator's still going to be keeping an eye on them i just don't really understand i tell you what toddlers are super creative as well <laughs> <laughs> maybe she is right <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, I think we're all very much agreed that regulation plays a very important role in innovation in that fintech space. Okay, time for a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. 
At 11FS, we build truly digital products and services for clients big and small, and we're still hiring. If you want to play a part in shaping the future of financial services, head over to 11FS.com and browse our vacancies. Now on with the show. And our next story comes from the Wall Street Journal and is about Facebook asking large US banks to share detailed financial information about customers as it seeks to boost user engagement. Now, Facebook did later deny this, but the Wall Street Journal claimed that it wanted US banks to share detailed financial information about their customers, including card transactions and checking account balances. Obviously, data privacy around Facebook is huge in the wake of um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And Facebook has said that they won't use the data for ad targeting and has now clarified that it's looking into letting users fetch their banking data via a chatbot, which they already do for Citibank customers in Singapore as of March. So Sharon O'Day, bot expert, Penny, for your thoughts on this one. So to my mind, there was quite a lot of uh, hyperbole and and panic about this story about, you know, it's more data going to Facebook and the news climate around Facebook is quite challenging at the moment. And people are quite cautious about what they're they're currently sharing. But when you dug into it, it is just about providing another customer service channel. I know people have cautiousness about using that channel, particularly at the moment. Messenger is huge. So people now spend more time in Messenger apps than anything else, any other app on their phone. It's normally one of your top three apps. You spend something like 80% of your time in it getting people to download any new app is almost impossible and getting people to open that app more than a handful of times is really really difficult so if you want to get people to use any kind of online service take it to where people are and where they are is messenger so there's a huge opportunity there i know this uh, people are anxious about what they are sharing with facebook but ultimately people do want to talk to all sorts of service providers including banks on the channels they use no one wants to pick up the phone anymore they want they ha- make a choice to communicate with any service provider in their channel of choice and at the moment that that is messenger yeah but then i just think why not do it on whatsapp I mean, I, I just never use Facebook Messenger. I mean, you know, I, I'll do it if, if someone happens to message me out of the blue, then I'm like, okay, fine. But I just think you could integrate something like that into into WhatsApp in the same way that Tencent's done it with WeChat. You absolutely could. It's the same process. Uh, it's, it's about providing the service to the customer in, in their, their Messenger app of choice. And for a lot of people, that's Facebook Messenger. For others, it's WhatsApp. I was just going to say, um, you can tell where Facebook's... Uh, the where a lot of their uh, richer users are because Facebook Messenger is the medium of choice for messaging in the state. So when I went out there, I tried to say to my colleagues, like, you have WhatsApp, right? And they were like, what, what's WhatsApp? We use Facebook Messenger. And I was like, I'm not adding you, my colleagues on Facebook so I can message you. But I think it very much, I think you're absolutely right, but I think it's very telling of where their key markets are and where their key markets are for testing things that involve money. So we see Apple test things that involve money in America too because that's where the rich people who use their services are. And and then they think about rolling them out elsewhere. And also there, there is a product ecosystem around Messenger. So there's already a, a developer space that is, you can do e-commerce within Messenger. Bringing financial and transaction data or customer service into that sort of makes sense, I suppose, that there that kind of ecosystem is out there already. Well, that was a question as well, because a lot of people were sort of saying, oh, well, they've said that they vowed they're not going to do advertising through the the, the app. Um, so how are they going to make money? It's like, well... WeChat doesn't make money through through advertising. It does it by selling games and integrating payment functions, you know, and, and encouraging shopping through the app. So if Facebook does something similar with, with the Messenger app, then that's how they'll make their money. They, they do see Messenger as, as a huge revenue stream for them in the future. As, as online advertising is, is absolutely declining, it, it opens up a customer service channel that, that is potentially uh, really, really lucrative for them. I think Facebook are going to really struggle to get into money here because they've got a lot of issues happening. I think they've got a massive PR 
problem. You just look at the headline here, give us your data, we'll give you our users. I know there's some nuances behind that, but it's only two weeks ago they lost 150 billion in market cap because they had to readjust their, their, their profits because of the privacy push they were having. So this kind of like conflicts with, with the messages they were putting out to the market and the, 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 the way they're pushing their new products and services forward. And, and also like, the, the customer trust in Facebook is uh, must be hugely, hugely bottoming out. I don't believe that they are not going to use it for ad targeting. And if they're not using it for ad targeting, they're going to be using it for some kind of personalization and targeting. They're going to be using that data. They're going to be cross-checking it with other data sources they have uh, internally. And that's a real worry, given what's happened in the course of this year. And whether they are or not or are not doing those things... This is going to be playing on customers' minds, and they have to get over this 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 PR problem they have right now, and they have to start coming out with some messaging and some products and some, some solutions that are addressing some of the key privacy concerns that people have with their with their products right now. Just as on the messaging point, just literally just springing to my head, you said that. Have you not seen the bus stops mm-hmm. all around London saying fake news is not our friend and we will protect well, your data? TV, it was on, it was on I was TV, watching that. Love Island so, and it was... I mean, that ties <laughs> in with one, one of their big products announcements back in May was around being able to let you go in and more selectively delete your data because, yeah. you know, back when we all signed up to Facebook in 2007, 2008, I don't think any of us had an expectation that we'd still be on there 10 years later and it would know everything about us. So they are providing more sort of privacy tools but frankly most people much as i think you're right ryan in principle a lot of people just don't care so eight billion messages were sent on messenger last month alone there's three hundred thousand businesses signed up people spend something like 80 percent of their time it's almost as if to say people kind of know that but ultimately the utility sort of it helps them over to overcome that it may mean they're using it in different ways so people have shifted how they use facebook away from things like walls to much more one-on-one messaging and they don't necessarily know that in the back end that storm powers the same kind of algorithm and personalization that any of your public posts do. But I think there's a there's a big difference here. There's this there's Facebook as the kind of product that we all know, and then there's Messenger, mm-hmm. and I think people view them very differently. And I think if you look at the the data, that um, engagement with Facebook is is dropping, and people mm-hmm. are moving the engagement to things like WhatsApp and Messenger. The Messenger and WhatsApp don't have advertising in it right now and until people start to realise how their data is being used in those in those services, will they'll then start to kind of get the same fears they have with the with the traditional Facebook platform. They have to provide some reassurances around that, especially if they're going into money. Yeah, so it I mean has... I, I, it does to that point exactly. People as because because people are moving away from public kinds of sharing to more one-on-one sharing. A lot of all of those platforms, Facebook, Insta, again also from Facebook, let's not forget, are actually focusing a lot more around how we share more privately with small groups. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same kind of recognition about what you're giving away is still sharing your data and you're getting the service for free in return. In because they're unable to sh- uh, sell advertising the same sort of way, they are focusing on I think moving towards potentially selling it as a service model rather than doing ad-based targeting i think i can very easily agree with both of your points ryan i think they absolutely have a brand issue particularly it's been exacerbated off the back of the cambridge analytica scandal i also hear what you're saying about actually maybe messenger is just kind of disassociated from that a little bit so um it's still relevant in that sense sharon to your point if people are using the messenger app as much as you say they are then there is a use case here isn't it it's about if i'm in that app all the time it's about putting it at the point of need absolutely and it's the app or for a lot of people it's the app you open most frequently you know you, you spend significant amount 
amount of your however many two hours a day or four hours a day it is on your phone in that messenger app and, and over half of that is with just a couple of people what, what i don't understand about facebook is why they don't do any more kind of innovation around that kind of financial assistant type thing within messenger because there's so much transparency they could add to that whole user experience whereby I can offer you some really interesting new channels to communicate with the brands that you mm. love or products and services you might want to buy if you allow me to use this bit of data. I okay, that's... fine, go and do it. But you're bringing people into the loop then yeah. and, and people are then comfortable with what's happening behind the scenes because they know what's happening behind the scenes. I, I, that's where I think absolutely this is leading, that we're moving towards, um, f- in the beginning, potentially you using a, your Facebook channel as a customer service channel. So, you know, when we used to do social media customer service, you'd send a DM and eventually they'd say, send us an email. Um, actually, they need to move that onto a channel. If there is an authenticated way of you using that as a proper customer service channel, then and the natural evolution of that would be to authenticate it with your actual account and be able to do simple things like balance checking or even moving on to a kind of Clio type experience of being either potentially AI driven or human driven kind of uh, financial assistant. Mm. And I think out of the kind of big uh, social media companies, the big tech companies, uh, Facebook are actually the worst at building relationships with their customers. They're good at building relationships with uh, people and people, mm-hmm. but they're not very good at talking to their customers. You think about um, Amazon and they have Echo and, you know, you can talk to that Echo. There's a bit of a dialogue going on there with Google and search and, and Google Home. You talk to Google and you ask it questions. There's a bit of a dialogue going on there. There's nothing with Facebook. I think one of the big issues with Facebook as well, and it's telling that they made a point to say that they won't be using this for this data for ad targeting it shows the effect and then the current state of ad targeting and it's because they've taken such a cynical approach to it to now and it hasn't been consumer driven i think actually there's a value case in there for consumers of using that to your point ryan data in a transparent way to deliver something that's actually meaningful timely contextual etc but they haven't done that to now so there's ground to make up i agree fully with your point about branding but i am going to move us on actually my favorite tweet that i saw this week was a modification of one of those facebook ads the one that said data misuse is not our friend dot 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 and someone had written on a pen it's our entire business model <laughs> so maybe that maybe that underpins right check, out, point check out john oliver as well he did a brilliant um satire piece on, okay. on that advert our next story comes from TechCrunch, and it is about challenger bank monzo launching accounts for 16 to 18 year olds we spoke to monzo writer harry ashbridge to find out more my name is harry ashbridge i am a writer at monzo um my room is to look after all of the words that we produce inside and out. Um, and I've been working on the project work that we've done to open up our Monzo accounts to 16 and 17 year olds recently. Um, so basically, our mission is to make money work for absolutely everybody. Eventually, we'd love to be able to offer our accounts to absolutely everybody. And this is just the next step that we can take in that direction. Traditional bank accounts don't always make it particularly easy for young people. The process of opening an account can be quite long-winded. You need to make an appointment and then you have to track to the branch. Then once your account is open, you don't always get a debit card, for example, um, or you have to maybe use a card reader every time you want to use it online. And our research has told us that all of that can be a little bit daunting if you're new to banking especially. So we think the simplicity of a Monzo account is going to be really useful for people. All you need is some photo ID and your phone and then you can open your account in minutes and then your contactless card is going to arrive one or two days later. Our research also told us that learning to budget for the first time is quite a big deal too. You turn 16 or 17, maybe you start earning some of your own money with a part-time job for the first time. You have to balance your own finances for the first time. Being able to see instant notifications every time you spend, 
being able to set specific budgets for things like clothes or going out, getting updates on if you're on track with your spending or if you're spending too fast. All of that stuff that you get with the Monzo account is going to be hopefully really practically useful for people every day. Of course, none of that is actually specific for 16 to 17-year-olds. Um, if you have a Monzo account, everybody has those features. So we haven't created any separate accounts here. We're just making our existing accounts available to 16, 17-year-olds with a few restrictions. For example, we blocked some things which are age-restricted. That's things like uh, buying something from a tobacconist or any kind of online gambling or paying any money at bookmakers. Our restrictions don't cover everything that's age-restricted, though, because if we wanted to block people from being able to buy alcohol, for example, we would have to block every single place that sells alcohol, and that would include supermarkets and corner shops and restaurants. Uh, and then you might find it practically impossible to go out and buy anything to eat, which isn't going to be a great experience either. The other thing that we are restricting, though, is we're not offering any overdrafts to anyone under 18. Um, we just don't think that's a really responsible thing to do. Uh, we're also not going to charge anyone who's under 18 if they go overdrawn either. You know, if you're just starting to manage your own money for the first time, it's not really fair to clamp down too hard on that by giving you punitive charges if you happen to go a couple of pounds overdrawn every now and then. So when people do turn 18, the only difference is going to be that we will take away those spending restrictions. Um, they're just going to have a regular Monzo account that adults can get now. And we are also going to wish them a happy birthday. But other than that, you just seamlessly go into having a regular account and it's the same experience as you would have had otherwise. Research from TSB um, earlier this year actually showed that two out of five adults still use the same bank that their parents chose for them when they were young. So it does make sense from a business standpoint to try and encourage, you know, t uh, teenagers before they are even going to places where, like university where they're going to be making financial decisions for the first time independently, uh, you know, to get them thinking about their spending now and get them um, looking at how their spending habits and what they're spending different money on and budgeting and so on. So um, I think it's a really good idea. And uh, certainly from a financial literacy perspective, it's, it's you know, a bank that's well positioned to do that. And I agree. I think it's, um, for me, this is a much better idea than some of the things we've seen launched that are specifically for children. So we've seen a couple of apps. Um, uh, Rooster is one. There are many, many others Go out Henry, there. Osper. Go Henry, Yeah. yeah. Uh, all, all aimed at, you know, doing exactly what Vasa suggested, like getting kids uh, learning about money and what they're spending and the value of money whilst they're young and, and also electronically, you know, everything is is done either, well not everything but an awful lot in the UK certainly is done either by a card or online these days so you know kids need to learn that as young as possible in my opinion but I've always struggled with the idea of what's the use of that if they get to 16 and then they have to like change or find something else to use and and also this the, you cannot underestimate the opinion of of kids when they're like I don't want that that's for kids that's for little people that's for young people like if you've ever heard a toddler go when I was little and they're five so you know <laughs> if, if, if you give them a product that's designed for children the use is probably likely to only be two or three years and then it's going to drop off but with something like Monzo where they can you know exactly as Val said get into the habits young but also there are still those controls they're not parental controls they are set by the bank so you know that everybody else has the same set of rules it's not like your mum says you can shop online and your mum says you can't you know it's 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 it's, it's a proper bank and then when they reach 18 they can upgrade and they can go into that overdraft thing and the other thing we know is that Monzo is going to offer overdraft to those 18 year olds in a conscientious way so I think I believe Sharon uh, was the person who said you know well the bank account you chose when you went to uni was the one that would give you the biggest interest for overdraft whereas Monzo have explicitly come out and said you know when we do offer you an overdraft we we give you as much information as possible and you know one of the worst things that was ever done to students was giving them unlimited interest for overdrafts and I wish this existed when I was 16 17 because when I opened a, my first bank account um you know you had to go to the 
the ATM to check my balance, get the printout statement. Uh, and at that point, you know, you're just figuring out life, you're going out, you're spending more money. The whole budgeting aspect is, is really, really hard when you're, when you're that age. And actually, Monzo, if it brings those, those budgeting features day to day. And I want to build on that. I want to go even further. So I think Monzo can add a lot of value in this space. I think w- when Monzo came to market initially, they identified an issue with um, how people manage their discretionary spend or mm. the tools that were there to manage your discretionary spend. And they use things like push notifications and things showing up in your transaction feed immediately to, to sort of resolve that problem. I think they can use push notifications and a similar approach to actually encourage um, good spending habits among people when they're still relatively young. And actually, that's a really, really valuable life asset. My issue with this is this shouldn't fall at the doorstep of banks or um, fintech providers, because I think it should be something that's ingrained in you through school, etc. from a very young age. And I often say on this podcast, I'm pretty sure I missed the class at school that was about here's how you save for a house. But it's all very well a teacher talking to you about how to budget your money. It's kind of very different and then applying that theory and actually having the tools to be able to help you do that. Uh, and a, a lot of it, you know, spending is, is, is a very emotional thing, you know, especially um, when you don't necessarily have built up those kind of mechanisms of self-control. You need to kind of be alerted that, hang on a minute, you're spending way too much this week. You're going to well over your budget. You're going to go into the red. Just be careful. Uh, and I think those little controls are amazing for, for, for young people really trying to figure out how they manage their money. And exactly to that point, you know, even if you do learn about these things at school, it doesn't really ingrain until you actually have some money to spend that you have to manage which is around that time you're sort of 16, 18, start going to university. The question for me is whether they'll be able to retain these customers once they do go to university. You know, that the the ethical controlled in, um, overdraft model is all well and good until you're absolutely broken, you've got some rent to pay, yeah. um, at which point you might run screaming to NatWest because they'll give you more money. But then it might be really interesting because they might take out a Monzo account and then open up a big bank account and then transfer the money they're getting from the overdraft there back into their Monzo well, account. I mean, it could be in the same way that there is that pattern. <laughs> that sounds very, very complicated. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Will it be a secondary bank account that people use their discretionary budgeting and have a sort of standard uh, student account for? You know, I, think, I think back to when I was 16 and a lot of I mean I was I certainly didn't have a card so most of the things I was paying for were in cash so I was very conscious of how much I was spending and therefore how much I was budgeting and then you think about actually well you know 16 year old today much more likely um, and certainly you know by the time I have a 16 year old will be much more likely to be paying with card and actually the real time notification on your phone saying you've just spent a tenner here or you've just spent 20 quid here is going to be a good reminder that you are actually spending money because you can sometimes get in the habit with a card just to keep tapping away mm-hmm. um, on and the this is the discretionary exactly. problem that they've sort of addressed isn't it yeah i mean sorry that, that's what i mean like you know the spending now is so different to how spending yeah. was when we were kids i would guarantee that most parents don't give their kids a 10 pound note of pocket money once a month anymore they, they transfer it into a bank account mm-hmm. or anything what's interesting to me is that i think we we all have the same ex- well not all of us but a lot of the same experience i did have a, a card when i was 16 i've had a current account for a long time but it was the same bank my mum had because like you can't actually for the reason that a lot of children's accounts exist, even for the major banks, is because you can't sign a contract until you're 18. So a lot of banks will give you a, ch- a children's account, and that also doesn't come with an overdraft or lending because you're not legally uh, you can't legally sign a contract until you're that age. So the easiest thing to do is for your mum or your dad to take you along to the bank and be like, okay, well we want to get you an account so you can learn about money. For me, this is really interesting because how many 16 year olds out there are going to go no? 
I don't want to bank with whoever you bank with. I want my own bank. I want the hot coal. Well, also, well, nice also is it still and... a chat-up line in, in Shoreditch Barge? Is there an aspirational, no, attractive to the ladies angle? A large here? portion of Monzo's customers are millennials. I know that obviously a lot of them aren't, but a lot of them will not have 16-year-old children. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's another, that's another thing. I mean, it's a, it's a good way for them to tap into a younger market now because the reality is that a lot of their customers aren't going to have 16-year-olds for another 20 years. I just love it as a really good example of, of sort of progressive onboarding. So you can offer for these um, 16, 17 year olds, a more restricted current account, teach them those good behaviors. And then as you start to sort of build that good behavior, peel back some of those restrictions rather than in, in Sarah's case, just basically hard decline until you're 18. Oh, and then I remember certainly when I was that age, which was, let's be honest, a very long time ago, pretty much the week I turned 18, they immediately said anything and have a credit card. It's free money, uh, which if you're a twat like I am, um, you take Nobody insinuated that. I was just saying that you speculated the reason you changed that account when you turned 18. Um, Some of those other restrictions, by the way, um, make for good reading. So we mentioned gambling, massage parlors, dating and escort services and paying for smoking and cigars. Are there lots of 16-year-olds going to massage? I won't ask. It's a national epidemic, isn't it? All right, I'm going to move us on. Our next story comes from payments.com. I don't really like this one, but payday lender Wonga gets £10 million lifeline. Um, so we've got the cash infusion from Excel Partners and Balderton Capital, among others, and the funding will help cover the compensation claims related to its past censured practice, according to TechCrunch. So Wonga agreed to write off the loans of 330,000 customers after, surprise, surprise, admitting its algorithmic technology had been lending money to people who couldn't afford to pay it back. And they've also agreed to waive the interest and fees for an additional 45 thousand customers so the fca censored them for sending fake lawyers letters to customers and arrears we always we all remember this and this obviously led to the the company being forced to pay out a further 2.6 million in compensation and before this emergency cash infusion wonga ceo tara nefsi warned its institutional shareholders in late may that the company risked becoming insolvent so I mean, I guess my overarching question on this one is, does Wonga still have a place as a legit lender or is its reputation in tatters? Where do they go from here? Has it ever been legit? Technically legit. But but the thing for me is like, you know, I think think Tara Nisi's been brought in to sort of the white the white knight like turn it round sort of find market fit not necessarily rebrand but you know i mean where can they position themselves in the market i think the, the pr's been too bad i mean i was on the tube and you can see ads for you know sunny loans and amigo loans and i think those are players that are operating in a similar space but just have a much better reputation um i mean what's interesting about this you know 10 million cash injection at apparently a 23 million valuation you think that a few years ago they were you know looking at ambitions for a new york stock exchange um listing of over a billion dollars sort of like i mean they have really fallen from grace you know over a billion dollar valuation now 23 million and but you know we're going to potentially um you know potentially go under early this year had it not been for this money so i think it would just be it'd be very hard for them to stay afloat in the sense that there are other providers in the market that are doing the same thing as but them do those other providers have the same sort of brand recognition so although wonga is a byword for bad practice at least people have heard of it and bearing in mind that when you are looking for that kind of short-term high-interest loan, let's assume that you don't have a huge amount of financial literacy and awareness of the broader market. So there's probably some equity with being the only well-known brand in that space. There's a, probably a couple of others. There's, I mean, they, it's interesting to me that so I, I don't understand why those particular investors have put the money back in either, just to caveat, I, I don't understand the business model enough. I do know um, 
Well, having done some research, I now know that they also operate in Poland, South Africa and Spain. So they have businesses outside of the UK, which which may be bringing you more money. They also apparently did this. This is going to make more sense to, to pet our assistant producer than me. But apparently they did a big profile raising uh, exercise by sponsoring Newcastle United. Yeah, that's right. That's um, which is um, an, an interesting move for a company that is that cash strapped to spend that much money on sponsoring um, a, a quite a big football team. I'm looking at Pet Yes, it's quite a big football team. All right. But also, you know, what kind of audience is that targeting in that kind of exercise? Well, I think as well, to Sharon's point, it's about, it's about brand awareness, isn't it? So I, I did some nerding out because I was trying to set, work this one out myself about why, why they threw them that £10 million lifeline. And um, I'm a bit of a geek on this thing. When you want to know about what anyone thinks about anything, you can have a look at Google Autocomplete data and you get a sense of how, what, how people are associate with particular brands so i did that for wonga and everyone amazing... everyone in the room is now furiously typing <laughs> wonga into google so, you can hack it about anyway anyway very little of it is negative when you have a look at the uh, search terms that people search for in associated with wonga a lot of them are actually the mechanics of getting a loan when do i have to pay it back how much can i get so ultimately there is absolutely a market for that kind of of service and when i looked at kind of uh, for short-term loans as well wonga is the one that comes up the most so that brand association is absolutely there and it feels to me like on that basis there's 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 actually quite that's that brand recognition is probably worth something if they can make the business model add up ultimately if you're i don't know your washing machine is broken and you're desperate for some money you're not necessarily thinking about their ethics or whether they sent illegitimate lawyers letters to someone it's will they give me 500 quid now but taking the fact that they've had a emergency cash injection and they've now issued a profit warning it would suggest that their business model isn't adding up and the trend we're seeing in in fintech is is around transparency and this is one of the least transparent companies that i've come across right in terms of like the rates and everything it's all small print at the bottom of the screen what new entrants are we seeing coming into this low end of the market for people that can't that don't have you know, good credit ratings so i think val's mentioned a couple of good ones so amiga loans you've got um, satsuma Sony, loans you've got sunny i mean and they all have you know i mean so they are spending you know money on advertising because i've seen those ads on on the tube and those ads aren't cheap but yes i think wonga because they you know they've been around since like i think it's over what 15 years now since 2006 okay so you know, quite a quite twelve years, quite a significant um, time frame, and that would you know, they'd be probably one of the first in the market in this space. It feels like quite an interesting space to me. In that, I mean, the, the, obviously there's the short term uh, short term loan market, which is um, known for obviously being quite ursarous sometimes. But actually, when we talk about things like uh, Monzo, it's to stop you getting in the shit in the first place. But there's very little for people who are already there. You know, where, where's the fintech for debt management plans or for um, helping people to pay off problem debt? There, it feels like there's actually that low end of the market. It's not very it's not very profitable but there's a huge opportunity for the technology to support people in those sort of circumstances. I think we see a lot more of that in the US the debt mm. consolidation play uh, not not uh, play is, is the business model I suppose is what I mean by that but um, they do kind of like we'll take everything and work out where you are and the only people I know who do that in the UK are the money advice service they'll be like you put everything you owe in here and we'll work out the best way for you to pay that off. Just as an aside I was looking at the interest rates as you're saying you know the lack of transparency they're very transparent but they tell you that um, so for example on Wonga if you borrow uh, £450 over six months, then the amount you pay is £866.39 pence back. So your representative APR is 1,286%. Now, everybody in the room is going, what the hell? But I mean, to me, it's slightly more transparent than it was because it says you borrow 450 and you pay back £866. But back to Ross's point about financial literacy, who the hell knows what 1,286% APR is? I is think the that's point. the point is that they're sort of coming to market saying, oh, we're, we're helping those, you know, this is fintech for the people who aren't being served, you know, by the monzos of this world. But it's like, 
well, you're just taking advantage of them because you're taking advantage of the fact that they might not know what 1,200 blah, blah, blah APR is. I mean, that's the that's the point. They were coming to market saying, we're trying to help these people. We're trying to get them out of debt. We're, you know, providing these resources and so on. But they're literally just trying to find, you know, the easiest way to make a quick buck. And that, for me, makes it, uh, you know, not something that I'd want to support. But as yeah, even as a representative example, Sarah, that was actually pretty clear. Like, typically, they're not very clear at all. I mean, it's, it's, that's just their website. It's completely clear for um, uh, for con- well for contract store comparison, if you like. I looked at Amigo loans as well, and that's forty nine point nine percent APR. So the wow, wow, yeah, <laughs> rather yeah. more competitive. So, but the point of Amigo is you have to have a guarantor. Oh, that's the whole Amigo. I aware of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Sorry, uh-huh. I, I didn't know that. But yeah, um, just yeah, it's about education and, and, and just you know. building on the brand awareness point as well. I mean, you, you you're swimming against the tide straight from the off because Wonga's got a lot more brand awareness than the money advice service. Yeah, so yeah, which is really sad actually. Really, really, really sad. sad. Yeah, yeah. So okay. sad. I'm going to move us on. So, this isn't going to make us happy, though, is it? Well, I guess it depends on where you come down. So the next story comes from Coindesk and it concerns Bill Clinton headlining Ripple Swell Conference later this year. So the 42nd president of the United States will both give a keynote address and participate in a Q&A session. According to the Ripple press release, Clinton helped usher in a period of extreme growth and adoption of the internet. And these learnings are perhaps more relevant now than ever before. Sarah, I'm going to just let you dive in on this one. I honestly don't have an awful lot to say on the basis that I don't think an awful lot of Bill Clinton. I don't know anything about Ripple's Swell Conference. To me, it it screams kind of way to sell tickets. People want to hear Bill Clinton speak. Although given the man just wrote a book but didn't actually write a book, somebody else had to write it for him when it was his own memoirs. I don't have an awful lot of confidence in what insight he might have to offer. Yeah, I mean... It feels weird to me. I mean, it says that Ripple probably has a lot of money because he charges about 750k per speech. And he I, made I about- buy that, yeah. <laughs> so so um, to, build on, to build on the quote in the press release and maybe try and build out a little bit of relevance. So it says, like the internet boom of the 90s, we are at an impasse. Digital assets and blockchain technology offer a way for value to be exchanged as quickly as information, creating more financial inclusion and economic opportunity. However, with this new technology comes potential for concern, requiring thoughtful policy to protect consumers from risk without hampering innovation. So my question is, are they sort of retrofit? They've got a big name and they're just retrofitting it to the crypto space. Or is there something in this? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I mean, the, the press release sort of has a few a few comments that are quite interesting. I mean, they helped usher in a period of extreme growth and adoption of the internet. Well, yes, because the Monica Lewinsky scandal was the first major news story that was broken on the internet. <laughs> so that probably had something to do with it. But I That's mean, That's another fun fact, by the way. That's two fun facts in one show. But I'm, and she's done a very good TED talk, by the way, if she you has. ever want to watch it. But uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, he's never really publicly talked about cryptocurrency. I think he was he was sort of gifted a, a Bitcoin um, by Matthew Rosak, um, the entrepreneur, um, back in 2016. So I think that's <laughs> is, probably... is that what qualifies you? <laughs> yeah, apparently. But that, you know, the, the point is that he's not exactly, um, you know, a vocal spokesperson in the crypto space. I'm not sure. As you said, I think it's probably more of a, this is a, a nice big name. And Twitter's definitely had some fun, um, you know, trolling. Uh, they've they sort of replaced his face with Bob Marley, Bill Cosby, uh, King Joffrey Brathian from the Game of Thrones. So uh, they've done a few things, sort of saying, well, there's, he's about as relevant as uh, you know a fictional character from a from a Sky um, series. I love all the ones from. Wasn't it one of the Democrats' primaries, the the recent U.S. election where he was playing with all the balloons? Have you guys seen that one? Oh, it was his wife's. Yes, <laughs> when yeah, Hillary yeah. Clinton won the nomination. Yeah, That's right. and. And uh, and the balloons came down, and he was backing them around like a, a kitten with a ball. Basically, is the best <laughs> explanation I can give for that. I mean, long story short, I don't understand 
if somebody from Ripple can explain properly how how these two things fit together, I would love to hear it. In the meantime, I'm going with the memes. Yeah, I mean, Joffrey Baratheon headlining the Ripple conference. I'm fine with that. Let's end on that. <laughs> and on that note, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Guys, where can people find out more about you? We'll start with you, Val. Yeah, sure. Um, so you, if you want to hear more about Oak North or Acorn Machine, you can um, uh, get in touch with me, um, valentina.christensen at oaknorth.com or on Twitter at Val Christensen. Thanks, Val. Sharon? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sharon O'Day. If you want to hire me, I'm lithos.partners. Sharon's got one of the more entertaining Twitter accounts, so I thoroughly recommend it. Ryan? Uh, on Twitter at Ryan Garner. Sarah? Uh, on Twitter at Sarah or on Forbes that's where I am now just in case anybody's interested right at the top um, and as for me you can shoot me an email rossgerd11fs.com or rossgallagher07 on Twitter do join in the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to really make our weeks do leave us a review thanks for listening goodbye